Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Breaking Absolutes. Uh, this is going to be a, an exciting hour that we're going to spend uh, with Keith Thomas. Um, as the nature of the show suggests, the idea is that we get outside some of the stereotypes and conventions of the way we think about um, some of the genres of music that we spend a lot of time talking about, whether it's people inside the industry. Um, predominantly, thus far, it's been a lot of the artists um, at varying altitudes of success. And today, um, in talking to Keith, uh, whose resume is is really quite stunning, in, stunning in a way that um, none of the guests I've had before really is, part of what we will be doing is um, trying to glean um, best practices and insights and um, information that is could be valuable uh, to folks who are listening, who are musicians, um, aspiring professionals in the music business. I don't know that we could find somebody who probably has a better resume for that. So let me share a few of these, uh, which is going to be a truncated um, view because um, there's just there's so much to declare in terms of the, the accolades. But I want to share a few. Uh, Keith uh, Thomas, again, um, has touched uh, in various capacities um, music that has sold 60 million records, has had um, 40 number one records in various genres, uh, two Academy Award nominations, uh, a win with the song Color of the Wind, Colors of the Wind, um, which also won a Golden Globe Award and a Grammy Award. Um, he's had seven Grammy wins uh, among 20 nominations, seven Dove Award wins, um, he's been nominated for Producer of the Year, um, and he's worked with artists that you've absolutely heard of, um, just a few, Amy Grant, um, Vanessa Williams, Whitney Houston, um, Selena, and, and many of you will know the sort of tragedy of that story, um, but there's some, we'll look a little bit at that and just the stunning amount of success that that woman had in such a short time um, and how her recordings have sort of gone on and, and done so well. Um, Faith Hill, uh, Wynonna Judd, Judd um, there are just so many, but you can kind of see the caliber of talent that uh, Keith has worked with and really sort of uh, built into brand um, music names. It's really pretty incredible. So um, with that as a primer, let me bring Keith on and we will start our conversation. Keith, welcome. Peter, thank you. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's exciting to talk to you. This is um, the first time uh, for, for me and for my audience that we have um, uh, talked to someone who's had so much industry success and has done it um, with music that is not the music that we usually talk about on this show. Um, and so I think that it's good because I've always, I've always been a believer that sometimes the best way to study is to look past the thing that you're, you're so deeply passionate about and try and understand um, and so I, I want to, there's a lot to talk about, but I, I, one of the things that we'll make time to get to is, um, the, the, the success factors, the success indicators, the kind of behaviors, um, that, that can move a musician, uh, or move an aspiring music professional who wants to work on the other side with writing and, and production, um, the, the kinds of, of things they can and should be doing. Um, but before we get into all of that, uh, your, your own story I think is a, is um, a really sort of beautiful um, build up to the success uh, that you've had, and so I was hoping. Uh, actually, let me take one step back before we dig into to that. Um, let me just say, let me just welcome you to the show and ask you. Um, you know, the last eighteen months have been the world's been in a crazy place, and it's it's been fascinating to learn how industry professionals like yourselves have been have made use of that time how have you weathered this what's what's been your approach well you know i tell everybody that i've been preparing for this for for 30 years you know that my actually didn't change much for me because i i hardly ever leave the studio there have been times that i haven't left the the compound for 10 days you know so wow. this is uh it, it wasn't a stretch for me but um you know look obviously having people in and out of the studio wasn't possible so I, um, I resorted to writing and, and doing other projects that, uh, that I knew I needed to get to, like video projects and just, you know, working, working around the studio. But, you know, it's, for me, it, it hasn't been that different, um, you know, in terms of like the work, workload. Okay. All right. So yeah. just, uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Some of the folks I've talked to, uh, the nature of what they do, um, 
didn't change like their day to day or even their ability right. to communicate. Cause you know, um, most of it, well, not most of it, for many, it's been just mental fatigue. You, you know, it's been right. sort of the, the mental constraint that's been a challenge. Um, I, I did have one artist that, that actually relocated from Canada here uh, just before COVID. And so it, it turns out that, that um, she actually moved in with my wife and I for a small period of time because of, the, uh, because of COVID. Mm. And we were able to work on her, her record and do things around the studio to kind of keep keep that momentum going but um you know in terms of bringing a new act and that sort of thing i just i mean i didn't do that during that period but you know we had enough we had enough going on with her that it kept us busy yeah okay good well you certainly seem um well adjusted and and articulate so uh you know and the world's slowly getting back to normal so we're all glad of it that it is i'm so glad yeah and, and i you know look i I know uh, this has been tough on a lot of different people, and, and I, I lost a dear, dear friend you know, to COVID uh, back in February. So my heart goes out to all those who suffered through that, and, and um, you know, I, I just pray that it gets better soon. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that with a lot of our conversation um, on this show and folks around the show is there's some growing confidence that live performance is coming back. Tours are starting to get booked for the fall. Um, right. So absent some sort of uh, unfortunate change in trajectory it looks like right. you know and of course for musicians it's it's a central concern because uh, it's right. um, one of the meaningful ways to to drive revenue for their business um exactly. let's go back uh, uh i think this is uh, you have this great story I, I was wondering if you could just start us you had some very humble beginnings um, and some of the best people i know had this like and i don't know if it creates some sort of um um, work ethic or, you know, uh, uh, different from a lot of attitudes today of sort of uh, entitlement. But um, tell, tell us the story of your childhood and give us as a framework for and then we'll move into how you began to become an artist. Sure. Yeah, of course. Well, um, my dad was a hillbilly musician. Uh, he's in the Georgia Country Music Hall of Fame for yodeling. Uh, so I grew up listening to country music and gospel music. There was no way with, with pop music was not allowed in the house so um we were uh, we were incredibly poor i didn't have an inside bathroom or hot running water until i was like 13 years old and you know and it wasn't you know it wasn't that long ago so it was like i had friends in school that you know they had all the nice amenities and everything but um you know i, I I grew up drawing water out of a well, and you never know if you're going to get a snake or or a, or a frog, right? And we had chickens running around the uh, the yard, and cows and horses and that sort of thing. But um, you know what I did have? My mom and dad loved me, and they I, and I still think back on this. Uh, when I was 13, we moved into a government subsidized home, and I had my own room. We had an inside bathroom, and my dad bought me a drum set, and he bought. Uh, a, a four-track uh, TAC recorder, and I don't even know how he afforded to do that. But I I lived in my room after you know moving into that house. Uh, prior to that, um, you know we would travel and sing around the southeast. I made my first record when I was nine years old, um, and I, I was at the uh, Smyrna Music uh, Store in, in in Georgia, and um, I remember the engineer asking me if I'd ever tried out for hog calling because I sang so loud. <laughs> and uh, so after the session, yeah, after the session, they, they took me upstairs to the music store and said, you can pick out any guitar you want. And so I picked out a Yamaha guitar, and it's still hanging in my closet in, in oh, the awesome. uh, studio in here. Yeah. And so we made that record when I was nine. We made another record when I was 12 or 13. Um, and, you know, it's just, uh, I look back on that. I wouldn't trade any of that. You know, it's just like I, my dad um, gave us everything we needed to, to have in terms of the tools and so after, after uh, when I was about 15, uh, 16, I started playing piano. I had already been playing drums and bass at that point. And so I would be in my room. I would uh, sneak in different records. I was listening to Stylistics, uh, uh, OJs, different, uh, Gino Vanelli. But I would take, uh, I would record a piano part. Then I record a little drum part and I'd mix them down. Then I'd do vocals and I'd stack those vocals and mix them down again. So, you know, that's where I started really learning to record. And I have a complete visual of my mom uh, bringing a plate of fried chicken and putting it on top of the piano and walking out, you know, because ah, I would play eight hours a day and, that, you know, I could not get enough. Yeah. So that's where I learned, you know, that's where I learned 
the work ethic, or at least it, you know, it's it's a work ethic, but it was a passion, right? And it's something that I just couldn't get enough of. So, um, you know, I, I started uh, doing talent shows in in Georgia, in Conyers, Georgia, where I'm from. And um, uh, the theater teacher at the high school asked me to join the drama club. And so this was my sophomore year in high school, and so I did. And uh, I didn't know that I could act back in the day. So I was like, I started winning these awards and I was governor's honors junior and senior year and ended up having a scholarship to go act, that sort of thing. So that was something I really, really wanted to do. Um, so when I, when I had the opportunity to go to New York, my dad went to a rehearsal with me and um, this is a funny story. He's a Baptist minister and we're going to this rehearsal and there was a dance routine. A girl's breast falls out of her shirt and the guy grabs it just to get a laugh, you know, and he picks me up and says, you're not going to New York. And that was the end of my acting <laughs> career. So I, uh, I ended up going on the road with a band, a Christian band, playing drums uh, for about a year and then went over to piano and started playing piano for them. But, uh, and that's, that's really when I really started, I say playing professionally, but, but uh, I, was, I was 19, I think, at the time. Yeah. But um, yeah, so it's like, I look back on that childhood and all the things that we didn't have, you know, I, I, I think it made me just appreciate what I have now, you know, it's yeah. like, I, I don't take anything for granted. Uh, I still work 12 to 15, 18 hour days and, and I, and I love it, you know, I'm still hunting it. Yeah. You know, um, so you yeah. So with all that, I think, you know, for, for me, when I look at things right now, and I know we'll probably get into that, but you know, the one thing that is still important to me is the work ethic, because I think that, that, that makes the difference in, um, in, the, in the skill level that you develop over time. You know, if you right. put the hours and the time in, I think, uh, it, you know, you're going to see results. And that's for me, I think I did that instinctively. I, it wasn't where my mom and dad ever said, hey, you got to practice piano, because they didn't. You know, and in fact, our house was so small. I think our little house, what I moved into at 13, was about 1,200 square feet. But they never once said, "Hey, Todd, stop that! It's too loud. I can't see. I can't hear the TV or anything like that." You yeah. know, they were so sweet about that, and and I appreciate that. But um, you know, I, I I I love my childhood. I have to say, I have to I, I go back and think about that sometime, and I go, I just can't even believe that was my life. You know, compared to where I'm living now and what I'm doing now, and so I'm just incredibly blessed. Yeah, you know, you said several, I think, really important things there. Um, one is. And I think a, a lot of um, artistic people know this, but um, when you're doing something you love, uh, it doesn't feel like work. It's not that you don't right. get exhausted, but it's very different from the grind. Uh, if you have a, a, a sense of something you want to do in life, and not everybody does, by the way. Some people, um, whatever they do is, is, is different from what they do during the day, and that thing doesn't matter. But there's, there's those of us for whom... There was some, I don't want to call a calling necessarily, although I think that that's an apt term, um, but the idea that you had something you knew you wanted to do and the, the energy in service of that, um, people are indefatigable. Uh, that's kind of a college word. But it, they just, the, it doesn't feel like work, and you're still right. doing that after all this time. Uh, I think that that's what separates, separates a lot of folks. Um, um, and you also talked about sort of an appreciation uh, of things. I, I think it's really, really important um, for artists to take stock um, of where they are because it's very easy to get into a mindset of the things you've not yet accomplished or haven't done. Um, so I, I'm, I think that, you know, um, from, from where I sit, your background um, kind of set a table that it, it was really important for the, what was to come next. Um, mm -hmm. um, and, and that's, uh, I want to kind of move into that now. Um, I want to, well, I'll ask you one, one question popped up. If your dad had not had that change of mind, is acting, is acting some, a primary desire? Would you have like gone at that hard and maybe we wouldn't have had all your records? You know, I don't know. I, I, I think about it. Um, about seven years ago, I had an opportunity to do a show on Lifetime. And uh, even though it was a reality show, it, it was, there were certain elements of it that were scripted. And, and I go, I got the bug again back then, you know, uh, yeah. to, to do something in that, that field. But, um, but I, I, think, I, think, I think it had a lot to do with it. I, I moved to, my dad's dream was for me to move to Nashville. He wanted someone in our, our family to move to Nashville and be successful. Well, 
I wrote a song that sounded what I thought sounded like Ronnie Millsap. And this is kind of crazy. Back in the day, uh, Ronnie was playing in Atlanta. And I called the venue where he was playing and actually spoke to Ronnie's brother-in-law. I don't know how I did that. I was 18, 19, or, I guess, or yeah. 20, maybe, no, I was 21 at the time. But I ended up speaking to his brother-in-law and he gave me the address to Ronnie's publisher here in Nashville. So I sent uh, two songs off and uh, his name's Rob Galbraith and for, totally forgot about it. So I'm sitting around the house with mom and dad about three months later, I get a call and he said, hey, Brian, this is the, I, I had Brian Keith Thomas on my cassette. He said, this is Rob Galbraith with Ronnie Millsap. I got your cassette. He said, I threw it in the trash, but then something made me take it out and I listened to it. And I love these two songs. Will you come to Nashville this weekend and do the demos? And so wow. I, of course, I'm on, the, I'm on the road to Nashville. I'm in the studio doing these demos and they said, hey, would you be our first staff writer? And so that's kind of how I moved to Nashville. Ronnie moved me to Nashville as his first staff writer. And so I wrote for him for about a year and a half. And, you know, that's a kind of a fairy tale story, but yeah. it, it just happened that quick, you know? And, and so with that, Ronnie would be on the road. He offered me 20 minutes to go in front of him and, and open for him. But I had a new, we had a new baby at the time and I, I, did, I didn't want to leave my wife at the time. So he gave me a studio to use when he was on the road 24-7. And I, that's where I actually really learned to produce. And it was a state-of-the-art studio. So fast forward all these years, I do that for any artist that I'm working for. If, if, if they need a studio, they have it 24-7. If they want to come in here and write in the middle of the night or whatever they want, you know, the studio is available to them as part of our relationship. You know? So yeah. I try to give back in, in that way because it meant so much to me. It changed my life. I mean... And I got to tell this story while I'm on this because yeah, it's, it's relatives. I manage Layla Tucker, who is Tanya Tucker's daughter. And as I got to know her and we were doing these little vignette interviews and that sort of thing, I was interviewing her and I said, so tell me some of your influences. Who's some of your your favorite stars that you've grown up listening to? She said, well, I love Ronnie Millsap. I, I would marry him tomorrow, you know, that <laughs> kind of thing. And I said, well, you probably don't know that I used to work for him. And she said, oh, my God, no. So anyway, I set up this meeting. And we went over and met him and everything. So last two weeks ago, she did a duet with him. And so oh, wow. you think about that. Ronnie moves me to Nashville. And then we end up doing a song with him where I'm co-producing. And it's like, that's just pretty surreal. That doesn't happen that often, you know? So yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a fun story to tell because it just, you know, you never know what's around the corner. You just don't. Yeah. Well, you know, um, like if I were to sort of pull apart that part of that story, I would say, um, you know, you'd been in this proving ground as a as a aspiring songwriter and musician for a long time with the support of your parents, um, and that married that with enough gumption to get on the phone with somebody at a you know, um, at, you know, just a little bit of bravado, right? And I think that's right. that's a necessary ingredient. Um, yeah. But by the time that person, uh, that brother-in-law or, or whoever it was, had that tape. There was already, it was an overnight success that took 10 years or whatever, you know, and right. that, that's what you hear all the time. Um, now, there, yeah. it almost sounds providential that, that he reached back into that. And we get those gut feelings sometimes. We don't know where they come from, or, we, or, or some of us have a, a, a faith belief that, that, that we do but for whatever reason. And then, of course, um, you know, the dominoes fall for you because you, and we're going to get more into where it goes from there. Um, but it, I do, it, this story that you tell is, I, I've heard versions of it, but it, it almost always, some of the ingredients include a ton of perspiration on the part. It's not like they, you know, sat around waiting for inspiration, wrote one song and became a star. It's, you right. know, they put in the hours um, and they've, they've married that with a little bit of, of belief in themselves and get up and go-ness, you know, and I know those are tired old phrases, but it's hard for me. I've heard it so many times. I just don't think you can ignore it. Right. Um, I agree with that. Yeah. So, so, so then you go to, and, and you spent this time writing for, um, for Ronnie at, for a year and a half. Um, and you had a, a lot of success there. And oh, by the way, uh, not to be forgotten, very, very cool that you're sort of paying it forward. Um, um, that's oh, a story you. you don't always hear. When some people reach levels of success, sometimes you hear, "Well, they're just so busy," you know, blah blah blah. Um, uh, so I wanted to, uh, I wanted to take a moment to pause and uh, and applaud you for that. Not that you asked for it, and that's not why you did it, um, but it's important, I think, to acknowledge folks who are who are giving back when they have the kind of success you have. It, it commends you well. Um, you. Okay, so now we're you've been a year and a half with Ronnie, and then something happens, and you have even more success. Take us into the next chapter, real quick. 
Well, I, uh, I, I met a friend at Word Records and um, got signed there as a staff writer and producer. And I was, I was at Word for about six or seven years. Um, ended up having over 21 number one records while I was there. And, um, and that, was, that was really a, a, a point in time where I just go, um, I can do this. I, yeah. I felt like, you know, um, I, I, by, by, by year six or seven, I was looking to go, I want to go, I want to work, I want to go into pop market now, you know, um, and, and, and I'm grateful for that experience because I learned a lot there. And, you know, the, the one thing about working in that industry that, that I have missed uh, occasionally is that I received so many emails, not emails, but letters from people that, that would say, this song changed my life or this song meant so much to me and it helped me through this period, you know, because they were written, they were spiritual songs that were written about, you know, helping people and, uh, and, and about God in general, you know, so all of that played a role that I, that I loved. I felt like I was actually contributing and doing something. And then, you know, I just, you just grow into a place where I did. I, I wanted to, I wanted a pop record. I wanted to make pop music because I was listening to pop music. Right. Yeah. And so, um, I met, um, uh, I, I had two solo records when I was at Word. One was called Instrument Appeti Instrumental Appetite, and the other was uh, Kaleidoscope. And so I knew I was going to be leaving Word, so I said, I'm going to get three artists on this record, and I'm going to try to get them a deal, you know, a pop deal. So I, did, um, I, I ended up recording B.B. Wine and, on a song. And, um, you know, funny story, he ended up winning R&B Vocal of the Year on my record. I didn't even get the Grammy for it, but um, that, <laughs> that began our relationship. So yeah. we ended up signing them to, to Sparrow Records and then on to Capitol. And that was kind of my foray into, into the pop market because they actually crossed over into the R&B charts. And so people began to hear that. Ed Eckstein at Mercury heard that record, called me to work on Vanessa Williams. I go to New York and we work on Save the Best to Last. And that record became you know, uh, a, a big success for her. During that time period, I wrote Baby Baby. I, I gave that to Amy Grant to write the lyric. And then, you know, for like 91, in the, 90 and 91, I was at the Grammys for producer of the year, record of the year, song of the year. I mean, it was like, is this like, is this real, you yeah. know? And um, so and then I ended up going to Sony during that period for about a decade as a songwriter. And I had a great run there. And you know, it's just it's just one thing leads to another. You're just kind of building those steps, and um, I'm so grateful for you know the the fact that um, you know BB when we were working on his record um, at, at Capitol, uh, they wanted they, they wanted a black guy to work to work on his record, and I get that you know because I'm you know but but it's funny because most people thought I was black because of the music I was making. Mm. In, in fact, when I went to New York to meet with Vanessa Williams the first time. I walk in the room and she's sitting at the, at the table and the first thing out of her mouth was you're white and and the room you know erupts in laughter and going <laughs> it's kind of a compliment to me because i i love urban music i love r&b music and you know as we get into this you'll find out that james ingram was like one of my heroes but he actually became one of my best friends and so those are those are stories that i just gosh i just I look at my life and I go, I have to pinch myself sometimes because I've got, I've gotten to work with some incredible talent over the years and I've been blessed in that regard. And so um, I don't take any of that for granted. So, but yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm rambling. No, no, that's, that's really, really, um, really helpful. And, and it takes us through the next couple of big chapters in your life. The question I have um, with, you know, without going through every um, record and artist and, um, uh, job or, or company shift is is it would it be a fair statement to say that your your participation here had different complexions sometimes you were writing the music uh, uh, and 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 lyrics sometimes just the music sometimes you were producing sometimes you were doing all of these things or are there like big are you essentially the producer like I'm because when I was looking at this I the, the sense I got is like depending on the project uh, you, you even um, on I think it was on the Colors of the Wind. You even are played on the record or right. on the song. So typically, I play on everything. I, I okay. don't think I've, I've I've only hired keyboards on a couple of records over the years, and those are typically will be like a B three. I don't consider myself a, a great B three player, so I'll bring in play guys to do that. But in terms of the arrangements, I do all the arranging, the string arranging, all okay. of that. 
Uh, and yes, I, I had I wore a lot of different hats. I was uh, I was a programmer. I was a producer. I was a songwriter. I was a lyricist. Uh, but but my my strength I figured out a while back is that, you know, while I'm really stringent on the lyric when it when it comes in, I'm not the greatest lyricist. I don't consider myself a lyricist as such. Even though, like I could fall in love, I wrote 100%. So you know, I I, I kind of torture myself sometimes going. Hey, you wrote that song by yourself. Why can't you write all these other songs, right? But uh, it doesn't come as easily for me. So the mo the melodies are where I live. That that to me, it's like a, a David Foster is a friend who uh, we both feel the same way about the melody. I, we can have, as long as we have a great melody, the lyric can be whatever. <laughs> but not really. But it's like you know, it's oh, one I of those things where mean. that melody, you know, the, the the fact that you can play a melody. And, and the sequence of those notes can bring a tear. It just fascinates me, you know? And that's yeah. where I live. I, I'm so anal about making sure the, the, the melodies and the, the notes and relationships and all that stuff work, you know? But, uh, so I'm a more of a melody writer. Yeah. But uh, yes, I did wear a lot of different hats back in the day. Okay. So um, just a, a sort of a, an in the weeds question then. At this point, um, when you're in and you're doing the compositional work, are you using a DAW? Are you using something like Pro Tools, or are you still with consoles? Like, what's what's your approach? No, I'm now um, I'm what I'm calling all in the box. So it's like okay. I sold a lot of my vintage gear a few years back because I, I the current studio I'm in right now I've been in 16 years and I hadn't unboxed maybe even over the half of it, you know. So I ended up uh, getting rid of it. But um, yeah, I'm in Logic. I was on Logic. Well, I was on digital performers. Matter of fact, it usually sits, my computer that I program, Baby Baby, usually sits right back there. It was a Mac Plus. And, you know, you can, you, when you boot it up, it says digital performer coming up. So I, I programmed Baby Baby on, on, on Mac. But uh, I ended up switching over to eMagic, and that, that eMagic is what's known as Logic now. And mm -hmm. I was a beta, beta tester here for them. And when, uh, when Apple bought them, I actually was part of the team that was like, um, you know, the advisory committee of what, what do you think we should do with, with Logic? And so uh, I implemented a few things that are in Logic still now, but um, I've been on Logic ever since. You know, I, do, I, I typically will program inside Logic, and then I will cut vocals in Pro Tools, and I will mix in Pro Tools. But I use the two the integrated back and forth. Interesting. I know a lot of – I use Pro Tools myself. Um, the only reason I chose that when I went in on software investment uh, was because so many of the studio engineers I, I knew used it. And I thought it, it would make it easier for me to find uh, find <clears throat> an engineer when I needed one. But I've, uh, um, that's changed, I think. I had one, one note about that is that uh, the, the Bennett House, the studio that I had prior to the studio I'm in now, I had an 80 input SSL sitting in the room. And by the time you know technology had taken over, it became my keyboard mixer, and that's what we were using it for. Yeah. So we were, you know, actually going into pro, going into <coughs> Pro Tools with that. But um, yeah, and so so with with Pro Tools, that's that's part of the conversation I had with the Logic at the time, or with Apple. I said to them at the time, if you can, if you can give, if you can make the audio interface more like Pro Tools and the programming, what you can actually do in Logic, you'll own the business. Yeah. And they didn't really do that because I still have to go back to Pro Tools because it's just so much easier to use. And, and I'm obviously, maybe it's because I'm so familiar with it, but uh, yeah. I, I do use the two together. It's, a, it's daunting at first, um, but the, you know, as you start to use it and spend those hours, that was the other thing I was trying to remember before is you, you, you made a reference for us, I think was um, worth calling out is um, the kind of the idea of quantity of time. Um, culturally, over the past, you know, few decades, there's the language of qu quality of time is is used and applied in a number of ways. But I just don't think it's a substitute. Um, uh, one of the sides of my life is writing fiction. And Ray Bradbury, who was one of the great practitioners of speculative fiction, talked about volume. He said, if you just write a ton, you're going to get some really good stuff. And by the way, it's all practice. And um, you talked about putting in the time. Um, and so to bring it back to where we were, uh, Pro Tools uh, was, was daunting for me. It is for a lot of people. But you get in and, um, you know, it, it uh, kind of reveals itself to you. And by the way, you just, when you need a function, you look up a YouTube video on it and you <laughs> learn the function and then, then you know it. It's all there, right. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 that's, I think you nailed it. It's like, um, 
and, and, I, and all my artists that I work with, I, I, I really preach, um, you need quiet time, you need alone time, you need to be by yourself working on your craft because that's yeah. how you, you know, I, 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 that's how you get your skill set. You know, it's like you can't spend an hour or two a day and expect to be a great guitar player or a drummer. You know, you're, right. you're going to have to spend, you have to woodshed, you have to get in there and spend some time. And so I, I try to encourage them to spend as much time as they can. Now, it's a different day, right? It's like we're on TikTok every, you know, it's like that is the new platform. So if you don't have three TikToks a day, you're not actually meeting the algorithm. So it's yeah. like, what do you do? So it's, it's, it's hard. It's a, it, we get lost in everything that's going on right now, but I am encouraged. I was just telling my wife this, this yesterday. I said, I'm so encouraged by some of these kids that I'm seeing on TikTok because they're actually playing the instrument. And there, there was a girl drummer last night and I'm going, I got to find her. We got to put her on a record. You know, it's yeah. like, it's incredible that these kids yeah. are actually doing the work. And I love that. Yeah, there, it, it is encouraging. I, I, um, just to highlight your point, um, I did a novelization of a concept record by a, um, probably the world's most successful progressive metal band. And they wrote a, a record called The Astonishing. And the conceit of The Astonishing is that uh, it's, a, it's a dystopian world where all music is created by machines. And the, this was fueled by the, the guitarist, John Petrucci's, idea that it's not simply the, it's not simply the worry that, that machines will make the music. Because I think I saw an article the other day that... Um, uh, AI wrote a symphony, and it was not too bad. Like uh, algorithmically, yep. it did a cool Coming. thing. But um, the the more more or at least important aspect of the whole deal is the cre the creation of music is a human expression we can't lose, regardless of success or professional like um, um, you know ambition. And so um, uh, for you know and there are, and we all know that there are school systems who are walking away from their arts programs and their music education. Right. So when yeah. you see, um, I, I'm on, I, I see it on Instagram quite a bit, exactly what you're describing. I see musicians, um, guitarists, and, and you just see this amazing level of ability. It's really encouraging um, because, you know, for a long time we've lived in what I've called a karaoke culture, which is just this idea that, you know, you can show up for a moment in the limelight and then have a career and you're famous almost just for being famous versus, you know that that where it hit me most, Keith, and I don't I don't know what your view is on um, on you know all the reality uh, music shows, but I watched one where a, a girl who she she was maybe fifteen, very very young, um, and she had been acknowledged to go into the next round, and um, and I don't typically watch the shows, uh, but I saw this one, and her she was she broke down in tears, uh, and her comment was, "I've just paid so many dues," and. Uh, I thought I know musicians with calluses older than you, uh, who, no kidding. who who are are still playing clubs, you know, for um, you know food money. So uh, not yeah. to throw shade on on those programs, I think they do a lot of good. But uh, man, the the I just I wanted to. I it, uh, this is an important topic to me. So pausing here to talk about people who spend time on the craft of it um, is a big deal. To me, it is. It is to me too, and 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 ultimately you see that like when if I when I'm developing an artist, um, the first time they've been produced vocally, they're like, why is it taking so long? You know, it's because we're in a creative process. You know, yeah. there are things that you don't even know about your voice that you're going to be doing a year from now, that you don't even know it's there. So we're we're going to tap into something that's completely different. I want to when I'm in the studio with a vocalist, I always tell them. This is a safe spot for you, for you can do, you can, you can do whatever you need to do vocally. Nobody's going to laugh at you. Nobody's going to hear what it sounds like until you and I say it's okay. So uh, if, if you're behind the mic and, and you're shy and you're not putting out or you're not really giving me 100%, then you're not really in the moment. You know, you yeah. have to be in the moment. And when you get to that place where you can just sing whatever comes, and then we try things. You know, there may be, I've had, oh my goodness, over the years, there's a group I first called that I used to produce, and uh, I've had them singing with mints under their tongues, or uh, just to take their mind off of thinking about singing, right? Yeah. And all these different tricks that would, they would come out with something totally different. They go, oh my God, I can't believe that's me. And that's, that's what I want. I want to take them to another level vocally that they didn't even know they had inside them. And that's yeah. exciting when you see that, 
um, and I and I still experience that today. I'll I'll have a vocalist in the booth, and I'll actually end up comping their vocal, and they're going, "Oh my God, I can't believe that's my voice." And so you know, that's 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 part of it that that, that I enjoy doing. I, I enjoy seeing that growth. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's I love that um, because one of the revelations once you start recording is that what you hear um, in your head when you're singing acoustically is not precisely what comes through when you document it because you're getting resonance inside sinus cavities in your in your face you're getting the acoustics of it is a little bit different so sometimes it can be a shock for singers when they first hear themselves um, and, and I mean you know the, of course there's a whole category of music that's using different kinds of processing to auto-tune which inflection and pitch and things get sort of compromised um yeah. But that I love, I love that uh, what you're talking about there, because um, producer that has a sensibility for the vocalist, um, I've worked with some that don't, and but when you find one that does, it's magical. Yeah, yeah. and it uh, sounds I like your career suggests that that's exactly the kind of guy you are. Well, it, it it's a fun process for me, and you know, and look, in in terms of all the electronics and stuff that that's going on in terms of auto tune, sometimes you'll get somebody on online that'll troll you for like well why is there so much autotune on there and i go um a lot of times it's not because it's a pitch thing a lot of because you want to have that sound you know? oh yeah and yeah so i've kind of i've turned the corner on a lot of that in terms of like relaxing on some of that because it's like there's so many different tools that we use now that we didn't have 15 20 years ago and they're simply that they're just tools it's how you use yeah. them that make the difference no i i i'm not uh i'm not combative about autotune i i um because i think that Usually, it's used precisely because of its sonic, you know, feel, yeah. uh, and mm -hmm. that's the, a lot of the pop and um, hip hop artists use it specifically for that. Um, I just, I'm just, you know, I, I spent a large part of my time in my growth uh, working with a classical voice trainer, and he was a guy that that um, trained Jeff Tate with Queendrake and Anna Nancy Wilson from Heart and Lane Staley from uh, Allison Chains. And so he had a huge amount of success and I became so uh, maybe just a little bit too much of a purist on this point. I can, I can admit my curmudgeonly nature on it, but I love <laughs> to hear the voice itself. Right. Yes. And, and I'll go a step further that I love live performance precisely because of the imperfections and the, you know, when someone drifts sharp or something, because there's so much energy in the performance, uh, that's beautiful to me. Um, right. So, right. You know, but that's a bias. Let me clear, let me just sharing a bias. Thing too is that is that if the, if I'm working with an artist in the studio here, they have to be able to sing. That's the thing. It's like we're not going to take somebody <laughs> that can't sing and then just tune it and make it, tune make it in, work, yeah. right? Yeah. So, and there are times, like you just said, when you know, if you look at back, um, if you look back at some of the even the Whitney records, um, her pitch is not right on. You know, it's like it varies, and it's and that's. Part of that magic is that, you yeah. know, and a lot of a lot of younger producers don't realize that it's like it's the imperfections. It even goes back to actually playing instruments. It's like you have these symphony players that are virtuosos. I mean, they can just play anything, but they're not popular on the charts because a lot of this stuff is just more about how it feels. Yeah. And so it's it's like I play guitar. I don't I'm not a great guitar player by any means, but when I play it's it's my lack of ability, I think, that makes it actually better. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I know, no, I know what you mean because I moved to Seattle, pursuing the big dream, and the group I was in was a different kind of group than what was landing hard then, which was grunge, and part of it was a little bit of the sloppy stuff. I know a drummer, yeah. consummate drummer, who was going in for session calls, and um, they'd say, "Can you just play sloppier?" You know, I mean, it was part of what they wanted to capture, <laughs> so. There you go. Um, but this, yeah. you you absolutely, one of the most important things I wanted to talk about, and then I want to get to what you're doing today with all of, all of in addition to pr still producing records, I know you're doing some other really interesting things. But one of the really big topics I wanted to hit um, is, especially because of, you know, your background, is what you just hit on, which is there are categories of music, genres of music in the main that are just broadly more popular than rock and metal are now. I mean, rock and metal was really, really big in the 80s. It's always had a, a sort of a, a counterculture or a subculture stripe that is very, very loyal. And by the way, as we've talked about in this program, as they've done anthropological studies, they're finding that the um, adherents to this, this style of music are generally more faithful to their spouses. 
Um, they generally have better work-life adjustment. But like there's all these things that are part of the composition of the people who um, use this music as a, a passion point and release and all this stuff, which is really fascinating. But for all of that, with with and we can both mention the exceptions like Disturbed or Metallica, who just become sort of culturally relevant across the board. Um, if you had to kind of give the a distillation of why is it that um, so many, like as the category of artists, you have a ton of these, these um, sometimes I guess they're called divas, but these amazing female voices that you have just taken to astro, you know, into the stratosphere with their career. Um, how is it that, that um, that music seems to find a broader audience, more sales success than, than other styles of music? It doesn't have to just be rock or metal. Like you leaned into, um, styles of music and lent your talents to creating huge, huge careers. Um, and I think if there's anything that can be gleaned from that for a, a bunch of the artists that follow this channel, I'd love to have your thoughts on that, even if you're just spitballing. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I'm, I, I'm one of those that I, I can appreciate anything that's, that's uh, really done well. And, you know, back in the day, I wasn't a fan of metal until I strapped on a guitar in front of all these marshals and you, you strike that chord and man, that feeling is like, yeah. then you have an appreciation for that. Um, yeah, I just think too, you know, uh, culturally things obviously they change, but I think as technology has, has moved its way in, um, we're intrigued by things that we've not experienced before. And I, and I, you know, for me, I was the first digital workflow here in in nashville with a 3348 sony 3348 at the time and so we were doing digital when everybody was still in analog and so i am an early adopter to anything that's like new technology so i you know, even with the new sounds that are that are uh, that are out there like splice and and um you know uh, uh native instruments all these things I, i'm i'm like full on into that um but it's like i think as Technology has made its way where music is ubiquitous now. It's like it's everywhere, and anybody now can buy a two hundred dollar Logic uh, DAW and make make records. Right. And I think it's opened the door for so many other artists to be able to go, "Hey, I can do that." And they just, before you know it, they're pecking out a melody or they're doing a drum program, and you know, "Hey, I'm, you know, I can do this." You know. So I think that part of it is why a lot of this me me too i can do it as well kind of vibe you know it's like yeah. they they want to be a part of that um that, that's where i draw the line though in terms of like um and i hate i don't want to use the word real because you know it's like what who am i to say what's real i'm just right. going when when you see an artist or a guitarist that i've worked with some of the best in the business that sit down and the things they can do with the guitar the only way they can do that, or the reason they can do that, is because they've spent the time and and they know that instrument inside and out. And that's what I would say to young programmers or young musicians right now is that know your instrument. If you're if you're going to be on a computer and you're going to just do program music, you're going to do EDM. Dig in and know everything that software can do, so that right. you can be the best at that that you can be. Yeah, I think there's kind of a distinction in there that I think is really important. Um, and by the way, I'm just I'm um, I'm of the opinion that. I call it guitar-centered music, um, I, and I even think there's a ton of country that you know, if if you released it in the time of Elvis, it'd just be rock and roll, um, right. and and might even be he is heavier than even Elvis was at the time. So I I kind of call it guitar-centered music, where um, there's uh, I remember when I was at Microsoft, I was consulting with some EDM um, promoters, and I didn't realize how big that genre was till I did. Um, mm. and so, and you, that is truly in a box, you know, the all kinds of samples and stuff, but I, I've right. done some pro I've done some building in pro tools, writing for guitar. And one of the things you find is if you don't actually play guitar, you, you make assumptions about how the hand works on the fretboard just are not natural. Um, right. so the, it, this kind of music, I, I think always comes back to, it doesn't have to be huge technical proficiency, but some sort of like real familiarity with the instrument. And I think there's an outbalanced number of musicians, and I think it's fair to call them musicians, who um, um, are are creating music in a, in a way that doesn't require like um, you know organic ability on an in a physical instrument, and um, and that's one of my sort of theories about how and you know pop and hip hop a lot of that music um, it's not that they sometimes they'll include 
a guitar and, and real drums and bass and stuff. But very often, none of that's really necessary. Um, but right. if, if you're going to do a rock band, um, it's, at, it's, it's at the center of what you're doing, right? Unless you're Trent Reznor or something. Um, right. Anyway, I, um, I think it's a, it's a fascinating thing. And I, I love your admonishment for musicians that if they're going to find themselves in uh, pursuing a category that um, really just requires they understand um, virtual instruments and that sort of thing, that they get really good at it. Um, right. because I think there's also stratification there between people who like really know how to use that stuff and the folks who just threw the plug in on the channel and called it a day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, um, I have to say I'm fascinated when I'm listening to pop records right now and you can tell, and, and this is, uh, I'm not like you say, sh throwing shade on anybody, but it's like, I can tell that they don't understand compression or EQ, you know? Yeah. And and that's hopefully they will learn. They will, or if they do enough records, they will learn that. But you you hear, uh, I'm I like there's a major song on the radio. I'm not going to um, point it out right now. But it's like they're double breaths. They didn't get the breaths out. You know that yeah. sort of thing. And I'm just listening for all of that stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Well, you're a real producer. You're gonna hear it all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's funny to hear you talk uh, say that. Yeah. It's a uh, uh, when you once you go through the process, and I'm like. You know, I've only done a few records, so it's not I can't even talk meaningfully to you. But you do start to start to hear things in music where, you know, oh, OK, well, that's where they spliced in. You know, uh, you you start to hear that stuff. Um, sure. So, OK, so like we have a, you know, all of this is shortchanging just the, the magnitude of your career. Um, we could do lots more time and maybe maybe if you're open to it we can have you back and dig in on some topics oh i'd love that yeah. um because That's i just think there's way. i think your this this conversation is really valuable and so um i don't want to plague your time but i may shoot you a mail about trying to do a follow-up if you're okay with that and you're, you feel free I to know. say no peter i've had enough of you <laughs> no 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 I, I'm, I'm, I'm all about it let's do it okay but i do want to close with with um having you talk to us about like some of what you're doing now and it sounds like you're still actively producing records but you're also doing some other interesting things can you share some of that with yeah, us yeah i exactly i i um well i'm still on the music side of things i'm developing artists i have um uh, i have two artists I, one artist that i manage layla tucker right now uh, we just signed her actually this week a year ago during covid to concord fantasy oh great and her record will uh her actual will come in actually 22 her first single will come in september and um i'm excited about that and then i'm developing an act out of uh, canada megan nadine you can find her on spotify as well okay, and then good. i've got two new artists that are just now coming in that we're starting to work on as well but one exciting thing for me is that that i'm getting into um that I've actually been into for about four or five years that, that uh, I'm fascinated by is, and this is, uh, is Oculus, you know, virtual, virtual reality. Sure. I'm really excited about that. And uh, I've actually had a couple of parties here a couple of years back, uh, virtual reality parties. But uh, about four years ago, I started developing music for Facebook and uh, for the FMI, and it took me to India. And um, and I've been there twice, and I've actually we have a team now that we've delivered music from India, Japan, Africa, Middle East, and uh, it's basically for their sound collections. But while I was there, I just this idea kept coming back to me. I had my cameras rolling and everything, and I I want to develop a show that carries me to all these different countries, and I'm developing this talent, and we're showing the process of of some of these artists that maybe a major label would never even give a shot. And that's, right. to me, when I saw what was happening there and what was going on there and how much, how appreciative they were that we were there and we were providing opportunities, uh, man, it just gets your heart, you know? And so I've got now, every morning, I wake up to a text from one of those guys there in India. Yeah. And uh, we communicate. There's, there's probably four or five people there that on a regular basis we're always talking. But uh, that's one of the exciting things that I want to I want to do. And then as the Oculus thing fits into that, obviously I want to start developing content for that. I want to I, I want our company to do the music for it, but also in, I'm a visual guy. So I you know I several years ago when I saw everything was moving to that's probably 2008. I bought cameras and lights and everything and set up my studio so that I could record, do videos and that sort of thing. And then we're going to do the same thing with with the 3D cameras. So that's exciting for me. That's yeah. that's what keeps me like really pumped. You know, I do I do a bunch of consulting um, for hedge fund managers and and other investors on the gaming sector, 
So I'm aware of some companies um, in Japan uh, that are beginning to do some really innovative things with multiple camera streams in order to create a completely virtual music experience. You're probably yeah. doing this, but um, if if you're if you're if you ever want sort of um, names of some of the companies who are starting to sort of really invest in that area, you're probably looking for people who know how to build the experience or want to build the experience. I'm happy to connect you. Oh, buddy, thank you. No, that's I love that. I I actually um, have an Oculus, so there was one one Africa experience that I uh, saw the other day, and I got the name of the production company. I'm going to reach out to them and see if I can you know, either provide music for them or figure out how we could partner on something together. Yeah. I'm just that, I'm fascinated by the ability. So let me just sideline that by saying the ultimate goal for that is to me is medical. I just go, can you imagine, like, Disney has already mapped their parks for 3D or for Oculus and or virtual reality. And so there's a kid in the hospital that can't get out. And so he puts on the headset and he gets to experience yeah. being in Disney World. That's the payoff, right? Yeah. You know, so I, that gets me excited. Yeah, it's, it is. A, a lot of that, I know Mike, when I was with Microsoft, it's HoloLens product. Like it, they were aiming it least of all to games. They were, they were aiming it mostly at um, uh, healthcare, um, travel. There was a bunch of industries, um, e uh, eco right. ecology. Um, well, I have to tell you, Keith, this has been... Um, informative and so much fun to talk to you. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to um, uh, send a, if it's okay, I'll include a link to your main website for you where people can learn more about you and get, uh, see some of these vignettes you're talking about. And then, um, and then we'll, uh, I'm going to take a couple of weeks off for vacation, but then I, I'll reach out. I think that there's so much I'd like to talk about and we'll see if we can find another hour. Perfect. Thank you so much, buddy, for including me. Absolutely. It's great to have you. Okay, folks, um, if, you, if you're digging what we do, follow or subscribe us so that we can continue to have these kinds of conversations with uh, people who are really um, doing the work and, and moving um, music and the music um, industry forward in uh, all kinds of innovative ways. And until next time then, Keith, we'll talk to you later. Bye, brother. Take care. Bye-bye.